Hey friends, welcome back to The Catwalk. My name is Clark Cowden. I'm your host for this podcast, and I want to thank you for joining with me for this week's message. Today we are continuing our walk through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel and looking at the life of King Saul, where he had a tendency to get impatient, to feel insecure, and to suffer from a lack of faith and trust in God. He made some hasty decisions which had a negative effect on his life, on his reign as king, and on the entire nation of Israel. And his story has some important lessons for us to learn today. I invite you to sit back and relax and reflect on this message, Haste Makes Waste. Nineteen forty eight was an election year. It was the first presidential election to take place in the United States since the end of World War II. For about a year prior to the election, the printers who operated the linotype machines at the Chicago Tribune and other Chicago newspapers had been on strike in protest of the Taft Hartley Act. Around the same time, the Tribune had switched to a method by which copy for the newspaper was composed on typewriters, then photographed, and then engraved onto the printing plates. The process required the paper to go to press several hours earlier than usual. On election night, this earlier press deadline required the first post-election issue of the Tribune to go to press before states had even reported most of the results from their polling places. The paper relied on its veteran Washington correspondent and political analyst, Arthur Sears Henning who had predicted the winner in four of the five presidential contests since 1928. The conventional wisdom, which was supported by various polls, was almost unanimous that New York Governor Thomas Dewey would win the election by a landslide. So the first edition of the Tribune went to press with the banner headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. The story by Henning also reported Republicans had retained control of the House of Representatives and the Senate, which would work with President-elect Dewey. <clears throat> the early return showed the Republican ticket leading Truman pretty consistently in the Western and Southern states and added that indications were that the complete returns would disclose that Dewey won the presidency by an overwhelming majority of the electoral vote. As returns began to indicate a close race later in the evening, Henning brushed them off and stuck to his prediction. 
Thousands of papers continued to roll off the presses with the banner headline predicting a Dewey victory. Some 150,000 copies of the paper had already been printed with the erroneous headline before it was corrected. <clears throat> Harry Truman, as it turned out, won the electoral vote with a 303 to 189 to 39 majority over Thomas Dewey and Dixiecrat candidate Strom Thurmond. Though swings of less than 1% of the popular vote in Ohio, Illinois, and California would have produced a Dewey victory. Instead of a Republican sweep of the White House and retention of both houses of Congress, the Democrats retained the White House and took control of both the Senate and the House of Representatives. The Chicago Tribune made a big mistake in printing the headlines that Dewey had defeated Truman when they jumped the gun with a prediction that was made too early. Harry Truman rubbed it in their face. Haste makes waste. Sometimes when we rush, we make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes can hurt us for a long time to come. That's what happened in the Old Testament to Saul when he became king of Israel. He was hasty and impatient. He was anxious and insecure. He didn't know how to discern God's will for his life, and it led to some disastrous decisions. In 1 Samuel 13, we read about Saul's first hasty mistake. 1 Samuel 13, 1 and 7 to 14 says this. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up, the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. 
<clears throat> the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This was King Saul's first hasty mistake. At only 30 years old, he had just become king of Israel. He was met with his first big military challenge. The Philistines were a major threat as they had assembled 3,000 chariots to attack Israel and his troops were quaking with fear. He was nervous and he felt like he had to act quickly before things got out of hand. The prophet Samuel had urged patience. Samuel had told him to wait for seven days and then he would arrive and offer the sacrifice to God before going into battle. But when the seven days had come and gone and Samuel had still not arrived, King Saul's troops started to scatter. He felt like he had to act. So he went ahead and offered the sacrifice himself. <clears throat> Shortly after making the sacrifice, Samuel finally showed up and condemned his hasty, foolish actions. Because of his lack of faith, Samuel declares that Saul's kingdom would not last. God had already chosen his successor, a man after his own heart. Because of his impatience and his lack of faith in God, Saul had taken matters into his own hands. He was in a bind. <clears throat> Samuel had told him to wait for seven days, but the seven days had come and gone, and still Samuel had not arrived. His troops were scared and starting to scatter. He wanted to secure the Lord's favor before the Philistines attacked. But this was more about superstition and desperation than faith in God. Saul's concern was for the good luck that the offerings might bring. The early church father Chrysostom wrote that this act demonstrated how Saul's superstition began to lead him into witchcraft. He was trying to control God rather than seeking to understand God. Sometimes in our world, we hear about people making deals with God. Some people will pray, God, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you. That's wrong. That's superstition and a way of trying to manipulate God to make him do what we want him to do. But the purpose of prayer is for us to do what God wants us to do. It's a way for us to submit ourselves to his will, not to try to force God to do our will. Sometimes we get things backwards, which is what King Saul did. When Samuel arrives, he tells Saul that if he had obeyed God, God would have established his kingdom over Israel 
for all time. But now his kingdom will not endure. He doesn't say that he's no longer king. God leaves him in his office, but God had already rejected him and put in motion his plans for a new king to take his place. Haste makes waste. The second part of this story is about King Saul's son, Jonathan's faithful fight. Jonathan led an attack on the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel 14, it says this. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth Aven. Jonathan was the son of King Saul. And what's interesting is that he had a stronger faith in God than his father did. When he began his military attack, he said, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. He made no presumption that God would act that way, the way Jonathan wanted him to. God is free to do what he wants. Jonathan wasn't trying to manipulate God. And this is a vital part of our prayer life. When we pray, we do not tell God what to do. We ask. We make requests. We always understand that God knows more than we do. And if God chooses not to act on our behalf because he knows best, then so be it. Jonathan was not acting selfishly. He was not telling God to make his life better. He was willing to accept whatever the Lord's will was for his life. But that also didn't stop him from taking this risk. He was not assured of what the outcome would be, but he was willing to step out in faith and give it a try anyway. Whereas his father Saul was trying to demand that God give him a sign about whether he would win the battle, Jonathan didn't ask for a sign. He simply went into the battle acting in faith, 
knowing that God could give him the victory if that's what God wanted, but also knowing that God might choose not for him to win. Secondly, Jonathan is also aware of God's unlimited power. In 1 Samuel 14, 6, he says that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. God's success does not depend on how much assistance we give him. Salvation comes from the Lord. He can do whatever he wants. He has more power than any other being. When God decides to do something, nobody is strong enough to stop him. As a result of having faith and having the right attitude, God throws Jonathan's enemy into a panic, and he delivers the Philistines into their hands. Jonathan and his armor bearer only killed 20 Philistines. The Philistines had 3,000 chariots, so they only killed a very small number of their whole company. It was God who sent the panic. It was God who caused the Philistines to run away. And it was God who saved Israel that day. When we don't try to control or manipulate God, and when we display the right faith and the right attitude, God often acts in amazing ways. <clears throat> the third part of the story is about Saul's second hasty mistake. In his superstitious nature and in trying to control God, Saul made a vow that none of his soldiers should eat any food until he had avenged his enemies and won the battle. 1 Samuel 14.24 says, Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Saul shows his selfish nature here because he doesn't want his enemies, to, his soldiers rather, to eat until I have avenged myself on my enemies. It's all about him and his glory. Forbidding your troops to eat in the midst of a long battle in order to ensure success is foolish. It was a hasty promise that should not have been made. Naturally, his army got weak, but his son Jonathan was unaware of his promise. Verses 25 to 28 says the entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. 
He raised the hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Because King Saul declared that anyone who ate was cursed, that meant any offender would be put to death. And because his son Jonathan ate the honey unaware of his father's decree, that meant that Jonathan would be put to death. But the soldiers knew that Saul's edict was foolish. They knew that Jonathan was the one who had led them to victory. As a result, Jonathan and the army disobeyed King Saul. They protected Jonathan's life and he was not put to death. But it caused them to lose faith in King Saul and question his ability to lead because of his hasty mistakes. Making decisions is not always easy. As Christians, making decisions ultimately concerns discerning God's will. Most clearly, God's will is revealed in his word. Any decision that goes against God's explicit will written in the Bible is wrong. For example, a decision to steal, to murder, or to commit adultery would obviously be against God's will. But Christians are often faced with decisions where no clear biblical precedent is given. We walk by faith, not by sight. Similar to Saul, some Christians ask God for signs to help them make their decisions. But usually the request for a sign corresponds to how much a person wants or doesn't want to do something. Sometimes we put more stock in subjective signs than we do in the clear objective direction from God, which is found in his written word. Sometimes Christians make vows to God in order to get God to do something for them. These vows are really an attempt to manipulate God to doing what we want him to do, which is what King Saul did. This has more to do with superstition than submission. God wants us to submit to his will, not to try to coerce him to do our will. In Matthew 26, 39, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion, he was asking his heavenly father if there was a way to save us without having to go through the cross. But his prayer was not my will, but thy will be done. That is the model for our prayers that God gives us in the Bible. In Matthew 12, 38 to 39, it says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. 
he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. The reason they asked for a sign was that they didn't like what Jesus was saying. Often people request signs because they don't like what the Bible says. They really want to do what they want to do, and they're looking for an excuse to do it. In 1948, the Chicago Tribune made a hasty decision in printing the winner of the presidential election too early, and they got it wrong. In the Old Testament, King Saul rushed ahead of Samuel and offered a sacrifice he shouldn't have. He made a hasty decision to deny his soldiers food in battle which would have foolishly ended his own son's life if it had been carried out. King Saul was superstitious. He was trying to manipulate God into giving them a victory. He is an example of how not to act. People are still trying to get God to do their will today. People are still looking for signs we don't need because God has already given us everything we need in his word. This is what Saul's son Jonathan understood. Jonathan knew that God could give the victory if he wanted to, without assuming that he would. Jonathan knew that God had all the power in the world and that God is free to act as he chooses. And rather than trying to get God to do our will, Jesus teaches us to pray, not my will, but thy will be done. When we humble ourselves before God, he will lead us and we will be able to discern his will for our lives. God bless. Stay safe. See you next time.